Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 157. Today in the show, we're answering listener-submitted questions about trail cams, out-of-state hunts, predator management, habitat improvements, and much, much more. And on top of that, we're opening the much-anticipated mystery package. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sick Gear. And uh, I think today is going to be a fun episode for a couple of reasons. First off, for most of the show, it's just going to be me and Dan, and we are going to be answering listener questions. As I've said a couple times on some past episodes, I'm pretty horrible at keeping up on emails and Facebook questions, and I feel awful about that, leaving people hanging without a response. So I apologize to any of you out there who are wondering about that. <laughs> and today, hopefully we can churn through a handful of those emails and questions and get you answers to a number of different interesting deer and hunting related questions. So I think that'll be good. Um, some of the topics uh, in these questions include uh, planning out-of-state hunts and application strategies, how to be smart about checking and maintaining trail cameras, um, finding hunting partners, some stuff about our camouflage and gear, uh, habitat improvements, public land vacation ideas, uh, and a bunch more. So I think that's going to be some good stuff, Dan. But before we get to that, we have got the moment that we've all been waiting for, <laughs> or at least I've really been waiting for. I know. It's <laughs> it's time to open the mystery package, Dan, that you've been building up for weeks now. Um and for anyone who was, who hasn't been listening, a few weeks ago, you know, you told me that you were going to send me something, but I had to open that package on air. So the package arrived yesterday, I think. Um, so we're about to open this thing, find out okay. what it is. But before before we get into that, I, I need to know like a little bit of backstory, like as much as you can tell me without. No, no, no that's not how it works. No? How it works is I ask, <laughs> I ask you. What do you think it is? 
<laughs> well, my first guess is one of your children, but <laughs> <laughs> the box is too small. Too small, and it hasn't moved and hasn't made any noise. Um, I don't know. I've had a lot of people ask me. Kylie was asking me. I have no clue, like at all. That's I thought good. I thought maybe. I, I, I try to sit down and think through, like, all of our past conversations where, like, you've told me, like, I need to do something. Um, you know, like, you should use your trail cameras differently or you should be more mobile or something like that. So I'm like, okay, is he going to give me, like, a tool that's going to help me do that? Um, then I had the idea. I'm, I was hoping. What I'm hoping is in the box is a plane ticket for you to Michigan in November. And you're going to tell me that you're going to hunt the rut in Michigan. <laughs> that, that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> So it's a surprise to you for me to come to Michigan? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not that. <laughs> um, what else? People have uh, – someone guessed it might be your 10th finger. Um, I don't think I that's tell it. You what, if I if I knew where it was at these days, I'd put it on my – like <laughs> I'd hang it on my wall. Oh, man. Someone <laughs> – this is funny. Um, earmuffs to the children out there. Um, someone told me that they think it might be a set of t-shirts and hats that just says boner city on it. Of all the names I have ever given deer and anybody's ever given deer, I think that could be <laughs> the best possible deer name ever. Yeah. Ever. I think it, I, de- I think it definitely could be. I unfortunately that deer disappeared. I wish that what would I have done though if that became like the deer I hunted for like three or four years and we had to talk about that every single day. <laughs> you you uh you know you're making comments on some of your partners uh social media <laughs> that are like you know the big you know some big time. Hey, join us today uh, as Mark yeah. Kenyon discusses his search for a deer <laughs> he's been hunting for several years, Boner City. <laughs> I just don't think it'd go over well. <laughs> Uh, here, another, someone else says it's a box of Iowa preference points. I like that idea. Yeah. Um, someone warned me it might be a glitter bomb, (laughs) but I don't think it would be because for the listeners out there before I did this, he called Dan called me yesterday and said that I should actually have my wife help me open it first because there's like some really serious, intense packaging that she should like make the process faster for me. Um, so I don't think you would have told me to have that happen and then have her open the glitter bomb. Right. So it's, I, ju- I did this whole buildup just to get your wife, <laughs> Yeah. you know, like what a way to ruin any type of connection me and you would ever have yeah, seriously. by crapping on your wife. <laughs> so I don't know. These are, none of these seem to be the right answer. I have no idea what it is. Um, I hope just, I don't let anybody down. I think you're going to let everybody down. It's probably not as cool as what everybody, <laughs> you know, it's like, ooh, I wonder what he's going to get him. Is it going to be like a human body part? Ooh, that would be so cool. It's <laughs> like, uh, come on, let's be realistic. It's not a human body part. So is this, is this, would you consider this like a gift or is this something that would not be considered a gift? Like this is just like a mm-hmm. thing. It's a thing. I guess it just, I don't know. I'll, I'll answer that question after you open it. Okay. Uh, another question for you. Is yeah. this like Christmas where like when I open the gift, even if I don't like it, I need to pretend like I like it and like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'll, I'll be able to tell by your tone in your voice. Like, oh, Dan, thanks. This is awesome. I'm going to put it in my closet, in closet behind all my other shit I don't use. <laughs> Uh, well, should we just uh, should, just we, get just, over should we just get over? Okay, just so over here's the box, and there's if you can hear that, it's not very like indicative of anything. There's not rattling parts. It's just like a thud. So I've got my scissors and I got my hunting knife here, and we're gonna do this. All right. All right. All right. You're gonna have to bear with me because I didn't have my wife help out and get this already preset. So and. I'm going to give a little insight real quick while you're opening this up, yeah. uh, just so it, there's not a lot of dead air. Perfect. But it took me one, two, three days worth of communication, one reschedule, and one day to get it. And then a day to ship it. So there's like a week of work that went into this. This is like the most absurd packaging. <laughs> <laughs> He's got so there's a there's a brown cardboard box, obviously, and then there's bubble wrap. And then inside the bubble wrap is a blanket. <laughs> and inside the well, there's a blanket tied up in duct tape. Electrical tape. Dude, this is, uh, like I have some, in, I have a little bit of an inkling of what might be in here yeah. based on some stuff I'm feeling. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to better understand it. Can I cut through this blanket? Yes, you can. Okay. I don't need it back. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like your child's favorite blanket. Right. Hey, can you keep that tape for me too? Save the tape. Dude, what is this? Oh my gosh, you were right. This is some serious packaging. What, what 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 am I looking at here? I'm looking at a set of antlers. Yeah. And I'm trying to better understand if I, am I looking at the antlers of a deer I know? Yeah. How did you get this? Dan, this This is the match set from Mark Kenyon. That is the match set. From Mark Kenyon. <laughs> oh my gosh! I look up even... at your look up at your shed that you currently have of him. All right, hold on. I'm still trying to saw this sucker open so I can get it yeah. all out. But that's in the other room. Okay. But this is the coolest. Are you gonna let me keep these? Oh yeah, absolutely. Or do I have to send them back. <laughs> Unless I kill that buck who shows up. You know, three years later. This is insane. I can't even, like, thank you. Yeah, no worries, dude. This is awesome. When are these from? uh, 2015. That was the last year. Well, he was alive in the, they found him in in the spring of 2000. They were found in the spring of 2015. March 2015 or February. Then he grew one more set of antlers and then he disappeared. After that, after that year, I have no inclination of where he went, where he's, where he was living. Um, actually 2015 and 2016, uh, those, those years I put out more trail cameras than I have ever had before. And, uh, 
he's very recognizable. He and if he was on any of the properties that I was hunting, he would have he would have got caught on trail camera. And I think either disease got him or somebody killed him on a different farm, which uh, you would think he blew up even bigger than that that shed of antler or set of antlers right there. Dude, these are awesome, and it's so unbelievably similar to the shed I found. Mm-hmm. So, so for anyone who's new to the podcast, let's give them the backstory here. This is, I think, did we go shed hunting? Did I find the Mark Kenyon shed our first shed hunting trip together? Or was our second shed hunting trip together? I think it was. It was the first one that was just me and you, and that would have been two thousand and fourteen, right? Yeah. Pretty sure. Yep. So that, interestingly enough, was the shed hunting trip where we discussed you joining me as a co-host on this podcast. Absolutely it was. And I found this shed. It was my biggest shed that I'd ever found before on your farm. Yep. And you let me keep it. And you named that buck Mark Kenyon. Yep. And that was a deer, like you just said, you followed for for a while after that. Yep. So there was... The set of antlers that you have, I followed them this year. Um, got them on trail camera a couple times, only nocturnal in 2015. The second year, or 2016, when he, when those antlers would have been lost, the, no wait, 2000, uh, fall of 2015, he would have grown his biggest uh, set ever. I, I forget we're one year behind. So, um, 2000. And, uh, it had been fall of 2015 would have been when he would have grown his biggest rack that I'd ever seen, probably 180 class deer. And, uh, he, that's when he disappeared. But yeah, it was 2014 when you found his, his shed on the, uh, shed hunting trip that it was just me and you. Man. And that was, I freaked out. And by far, that's still the biggest shed I've ever found. Mm-hmm. Uh, such a nice shed. And so many times I just pick up that antler and like hold it in my hands and spin it around in a circle. And I cannot believe I am holding a match set of his. I cannot, this is, this is, you did not let me down. This is, <laughs> this is way cooler than you sending me one of your kids. <laughs> like a dead, yeah. dead cat yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, man. Look at the G2 on his right side. It is nuts in the mass. Yeah. Wow. Well, for everyone listening, I'll obviously post pictures of this so you can take a look at these. But did you have to like sell your soul or do something inappropriate to get these? No. Uh, I I went in on a favor, um, and my wife had to uh, make some baby clothing. Uh, so there was a little. Wow. It, uh, they were going to give them to me anyway, but I gave some baby clothing. Uh, as well, like just kind of as a, but, uh, the people who gave them to me are really, really nice individuals. Um, they had no problem giving them up and, uh, went over there, had a good conversation with them. Uh, they knew it was, uh, for a gift and they just wanted me to pass on them, you know, the message to you as well as hopefully you like them. So dude, that's awesome. That is so cool. That was so nice of them to give these up and, oh, I'm just like in shed shock right now, man. So yeah. cool. These are such sweet, sweet sheds. I think on the actual antler, there should be a date when, when they found them. Yes. On one see. of the antlers. I saw that. They found this 
on February 21st, 2015. Yep. Wow. That is sweet. So now of all the history that other than other than sightings, I don't think anybody ever saw him from the tree stand other than trail camera pictures, right? Uh, I never saw him. They never, the, the neighbors never saw him, um, from, from the tree stand. I'm, I don't, I didn't hear of any other uh, hunters in the area talking about him. So as far as history is concerned, uh, and shed antlers, unless someone else has some that I don't know, you have all, to my knowledge, you have all the history of the Mark Kenyon buck. That is pretty freaking cool. That is pretty darn cool. Man, I am tickled with this. Thank you, dude. So cool. They are awesome sheds. Oh, my gosh. So for, sweet. For awesome character, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so let's, do you want me yeah, to describe? describe that. You describe them. So we got both sides, obviously. The right side has got two big kickers right out of the bases, like three-quarters of an inch, an inch long. And then you come up the brow tine. It's like a six-inch brow tine with two flyers off it. It's kind of a big, deep split and then a little flyer off the bottom of the brow tine. And then the G2 is like, ugh, I don't know, 12 inches long, maybe longer, with a kicker off the front, and it's kind of bladed. And then the G3 is another, like, 11 inches or something. And then a small G4, but that end of the main beam, like, kind of blades out, um, Mm -hmm. which is sweet. And then the left side, he's got two stickers out of the base again. He's got another deep split in the brow tine. He's got the same uh, tall G2, but it's got a, a... deeper split on it awesome crazy mass on this side his main beam at the end is like i don't know huge mass and like it's broken off too it's, it's broken off yo. yeah about Kinda four like, or five inches now wasn't he broken off on the side i have too uh i don't think so. i don't think he was broken off on the side you have i feel like there was a break somewhere i i i should go look at the shed it's in my it's in the room next door um man super duper cool man so if you were to guess on a score of a gross score of what you're holding in your hands right now, what would you what would you think? Oh my gosh, this is tough because of how much junk he's got. But he's yeah. a mainframe um, nine, I guess, right? Yeah, one, two, three, I think nine. I think one point was broken off at the end of uh, the busted. at the end. Yeah. So let's say he's a ten, mainframe ten with with junk. Mainframe ten with all sorts of junk. Uh, oh boy, I mean. He's not as wide as you think, so I'm guessing mid 150s to low 160s. Oh, I was gonna give him more than that. Yeah, yeah, because that his twos and threes are so long. He's got yeah. so many splits. All the, all these extra time. I'm putting him at high 160s to. Oh really? I think so. I I, I also suck at uh, judging deer. So what you should do is okay. Well, you measured – we measured that one antler, right? It was like 65 inches almost exactly, right? Yeah, it was like 64 and 7 eighths or something like that. Yeah. So what you should do is when you post the picture or maybe have a, a, a listener get a guess. So yeah. like post the pictures from different angles uh, and maybe I'll try to find a trail cam pick and yeah. you can post with there as well, post it with that as well. And then we'll get a guess and then you can measure the sheds for us. I think that's a cool idea. I think it's going to be big. I think it's going to yeah. be a higher score because it's just all that that stuff adds up. He's got such good mass, good time length. Oof, what a buck! Wow, yeah. that is super cool, man. Well, geez, I owe you now. No, man, that's just uh, 
I don't know. That's a kind of a hunting buddy thing, you know. It's just something that I that they they could sit on my wall uh, with all my other antlers, but I knew it would mean prob it would probably mean more to you than it would to me. So I figured, hey, what the hell? I'm gonna ask them uh, if you know if they uh, want to come up come off of them, and they you know generously did, and um, you know. That's uh, your namesake, so I figured give it to you, man. I got a I got a wall full of sheds anyway, and um, I just need to go. F- now, if I found those sheds, that might have been a different story. Right, right, definitely. But um, I don't know. I don't know if my buddy Ryan listens to a lot of podcasts, but uh, one one shed hunt uh, we went on. He found two years of the same match two match sets of the same exact buck. Yep. Um, I called, and then I called that buck Ryan Iberg. Yeah. And I have a match set from that buck as well. And I think I'm going to, uh, give those antlers to, or those sheds to him. That's pretty cool. So Man, you're like, uh, the shed Santa. <laughs> <laughs> you're the best Santa Claus I ever met. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, um, those, you know, You'll have to find a good good spot for them and uh, take oh, some pictures yeah. and show everybody. Heck yeah! This is the man. The three biggest sheds in my home now are all from your place, Dan. So <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. That's awesome, man. I'm stoked. I'm just gonna sit here and like roll them around in my hands for the next hour, probably. But <laughs> I guess that wouldn't make for a very interesting podcast if I just sit here silently <laughs> looking at it. Si- <laughs> Ooh, look at that. Ooh, that's cool. No one can see what you're doing. <laughs> Alrighty, that's exactly what they're thinking. Like, God, I wish I could see them. This is the most boring yeah. thing ever. So, wow. So well, while I uh, while I stare at these antlers for a while more. What's new with you? Uh, have you any anything new in your world, deer hunting? We got. I figure we can talk a little bit. We can catch up a little bit on what's new with our deer stuff. I have some updates, uh, and then we can get to those questions. Yep, absolutely. I mean, other than gear stuff, right? I uh, the other day uh, I got some new tree stands in. I put those together um, and uh, got those situated for the next hang. Uh, I went through some of my old stuff. I inspected the cables. I inspected the straps and, um, looking forward to, you know, to be honest, father's day, this last Sunday was like a high of 75 in Iowa would have been the absolute perfect day to go hang stands. But, uh, of course I didn't. And so now I got to wait probably (laughs) till July when it's going to be like 95 out. I'm getting ready to pass out, but a gear, you know, just a lot of looking at gear. Um, I actually made a list of, you know, running through my equipment, making a list of some of the stuff that I, I need to pick up before the season starts or actually in the near future. And, um, and then ended up, uh, you know, just starting to shoot my bow, tweak it, get it where I, I want, uh, want to have it. And, uh, I, it's just, you know, one day closer, I started really, I haven't done any selfies to prove it yet, but it <laughs> well, didn't happen then. <laughs> yep, exactly. So I, I've been I've been focusing on my leg strength and my leg conditioning, um, uh, working out, you know, getting ready for um, elk hunt. And this elk hunt that um, I'm going to be going on, potentially going on, depending on how the the when the kid and what Sarah's feeling like early September, but uh, 
uh, is going to be like 2000 feet higher than what we were in Idaho. Oof. Nice. Yeah. And we're going to be in some, he- uh, some tall stuff in, in Colorado. So I need to get my conditioning on point and, uh, make sure that, uh, that is, that goes well. I need to make sure I have some gear for that trip as, as well. But, uh, you know, every, Oh, by the way, one of I'm in no, no, uh, way affiliated with this company, but I bought this pack, right. From a company called outdoorsman mm-hmm. and there, there's a weight, you can put like a, a weightlifting plate on it. Okay. It has an attachment. Yeah. So I'm going to use that as my pack, but there's an attachment that comes with, with it that you can put weightlifting plates on. And I already had weightlifting plates. That's cool. So it was kind of an impulse buy, but it's a really cool way to, uh, load down a pack with some dead weight, um, and just go for walks. Yeah, that's kind of nice rather than having to stuff your regular pack full of a thousand different things to try to get right. to that heavy weight. Right. That's right. Cool so idea. you, what's up? Food plots done? Oh, no. Uh, they're kind of in maintenance mode now. There's just so much stuff that's got to be done um, later, still in the summer. Got to wait to plant and stuff. But um, I think last time we talked, I had already sprayed everything and I planted the food plot screens, right? We talked about that. Yeah. Um, so now I'm just kind of wait mode. Um, I went out and checked it. The food plot screens aren't coming in as well as I was hoping they would. Um, at least not in my main, like the front food plot. A lot of weed growth, um, is popping up already and not a ton of the wheat or Egyptian wheat or sorghum seems to have germinated. So I'm a little bit concerned. I'm hoping maybe it's just slow going. Um, but I'm a little concerned about that. So we'll see. That's TBD. Um, but I did, uh, I did finish putting in one of my water holes. So I got a water hole put in there now in the front food plot system. So Is that just like a cattle tank that yeah. you buried? Yep, just a big 40-gallon tank that I bought, buried it up to the top in a low spot. So hopefully when it rains and stuff, it'll catch runoff and, and stay somewhat filled. Um, and then just put a stick in it just in case a mouse or something climbs in there and it can get out. So yeah. that's in there. And I put a trail camera over it, so we'll see if it's getting any action. I haven't checked that camera yet, so... Um, maybe soon. Um, so basically that's the latest I did in Michigan, put out a couple trail cameras, put in that water hole. And I put that water hole, you know, like we talked a few weeks ago about how I'm just trying to like continue to sweeten the pot as best as I can at some of these best tree stand locations. Um, so, you know, this has already got a food plot there. I'm already doing things to increase the cover around it. Um, I'm putting in this water hole and then I'm going to move. I put in a fake scrape tree in this plot last year. I'm going to move it now over to the, the uh, east side of the food plot now a little bit closer to the edge um and then also like we talked about a month ago i also um when i sprayed the food plots this year i kind of shifted the food plot over like we talked about so now there's like a 40 yard strip on the right hand side that used to be food plot and you know seven inch tall vegetation that's now growing up in thick weeds and brambles and stuff like that um so hopefully that's going to mean these deer are going to feel a little more comfortable coming over to my side of the line and getting close to where I can shoot them coming into that scrape tree or to the water hole or to the food. I'm just trying to incentivize any way to get these deer where I need them. Right. So got that stuff kind of ready to rock and roll up front. And then um, I'm going to have to spray it again here probably in a few weeks because there's new weeds growing already. Um, and then after that, it'll be, it'll be planting time in, in August. So that was Michigan. I went to Ohio, um, 
I guess it would have been last week, Monday. Me and yeah. Josh went down there. Um, well, I don't know, it was last weekend, I guess, two weeks, a week and a half ago or whatever, during the weekend. Um, and we just did a lot of like the little fine tuning type stuff that, you know, been doing a lot of this year. Hit a couple different tree stands, trimmed out new lanes or just kind of fixed up any spots where we needed it. We added some cover to a couple tree stands, just cutting limbs, sticking them in, um, like the, the grid of the tree stand base, different stuff like that, just to add a little bit more. Um, and we, we put three trail cameras up, put out some mineral for them. And now we're just going to patiently wait on those. So Ohio is kind of done. Josh is going to go back one more time in the summer while I'm out West and he's going to check the cameras and, um, double check one one or two more tree stands. But now it's just a waiting game for that spot. Um, so we'll see. That's Ohio, Michigan. I've got a lot more, more tree stand prep on some other places. I want to do some more scouting on that public land we talked about. I uh, got to go back up north to do some more work on our food plot and some tree stands up there. Oh, and uh, I want to try to somehow sneak in a trip to Iowa because I I did apply for my did I tell you that I applied for my Iowa tag this year. Yeah, I don't think you told okay. you you told the listeners, but you told me. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully going to draw that and uh, going to try squeezing some hunts there. So that's kind of my thoughts. Yeah, busy. And then last I night, guess I hmm? go ahead. I was just going to say then last night I was just sitting looking at maps all night at like North Dakota because I'm going to yeah. try to hit Montana first and then go to North Dakota after that if I, f- if I fill my Montana tag. So looking at a bunch of public land there and brainstorming and thinking through all that. So slowly the pieces are coming together. So you're talking about – so you, where all are you hunting this year? Montana, possibly North Dakota, possibly Iowa, Ohio, and Michigan? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Wow, buddy. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, two of those trips, Montana and North Dakota will be in early September. You know, right. I'm, I'm just tacking that on to the end of my regular time out there. Um, and so then for the majority of the regular season, you know, October through January or whatever, I'll just be bouncing between Michigan, Ohio, and Iowa. Um, right. And I'm thinking, um, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to balance that yet, but you know, I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna prioritize Michigan during the time frames that I think Holyfield's gonna be active, yeah. um, and then only if I've already killed him or he, if he's gone, then would I travel to Ohio or Iowa for other rut stuff. Um, usually, I'd prioritize one of them over Michigan, but this year it's gonna be, you know, right? It's Holyfield. So, absolutely, that's crazy, man. That's a lot of uh, a lot of driving. Yeah. Um, I guess I got my trail cameras out. I got five of them out. That's oh, nice. it. Um, but I still waiting to put my other ones out the next trip I make down. But, uh, I don't know, man. It's just like now that they're out, I want to go check them, which I know I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Are you, uh, what's your summer? Where are you putting these cameras right now? Are you just doing some mineral stuff like usual? Yeah. Yep. Edge, of, edge of bean fields, that type of thing. Yeah. The, uh, my, my current setup are, uh, timber lines. Uh, there's, there's a couple that are on the, the edge of, uh, egg, of egg fields, uh, some buffer strip type of scenarios. Um, but nowhere close to like my hunting my setups. Right. So kind of out of the way areas where I don't know if anybody does come walking through the property saying, okay, well, all right, well that tree stand, where's the, where's the, uh, the mineral station or where's the bait pile or whatever, you know? So I don't want to, I don't want to have to deal with that. So they're kind of all out of the way. 
Um, and I, I'll, I have like five more mineral stations that I need to put trail cameras over yet. And then in September is when I transition those to the pinch points, travel corridors and, uh, possible scrapes. Nice. Nice. So gotta love it. I love this time of year. Like you said, I'm just itching to look at my stuff too and see what could be out there. And I've done a few drives around, around here in Southern Michigan. I haven't seen, I saw one nice buck far from anywhere I could hunt, but, um, but one far out there. So yeah, they're growing. Yeah. I got a, I got tree stands yet to hang. And, uh, last year I didn't get it done until like almost the last week in August. And the goal for me is to get that out a little bit sooner this year. Um, and, uh, hopefully I can get that taken care of sooner rather than later. But I don't know. I don't know how, when you hang your, uh, tree stands, let's say like you hang them now or you hang them in July. Do you ever have to, you know, when the hunting season comes, do you ever run into having to go and trim out again on your first hunt because there was some movement in the timber, like whether a branch blown down or there was some additional growth in some trees that kind of blocked your shooting lanes? I have had that happen. Um, I'd say usually it's like 97% fine. Um, but I usually still bring like just a handsaw with me, you know, into that first hunt just in case it's usually like the little new growth that starts popping off of one of the bigger limbs, you know, that that slightly covers up one of your holes or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is one of the inherent risks of doing your stuff early. Right. Right. Oh, I guess there's one thing that I'm, I'm excited to do and I'm excited to do it now when I go and check my trail cameras for the first time, probably next month. Uh, some of my far ones, I'm going to be setting my tree stands up on some of these, you know, I talked earlier about access. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm going to be walking those cricks, uh, in and just giving it a, a feel of what I need to do and get kind of a test run, uh, with a stand on my back to see what I actually need to do to look, um, uh, get to some of these locations on the farm without disturbing the deer on some of these morning hunts. So it's a good idea to test that out. Yeah. yeah. I've had, I've had some situations like that where I thought I could walk a Creek or something, but never really tried it. And then yeah. like there was down trees all over it or way too yep. deep water or different things like that. So that's, that's very smart. Yeah. Well, so what's up, man? What do we, we got some questions or what? Yeah, we got some listener questions um, on a whole bunch of different things that I haven't got to get to yet. So I thought uh, this would be a good opportunity to do that. And I think there's a wide enough variety of topics that I think a lot of people will find this stuff interesting. So um, so let's do it. Let's take a quick break uh, for a word from our partners at Sitka, and then let's tackle these questions. All right, so this week, rather than share a Sika story, I wanted to give you a heads up on something that's going on right now if you're listening to this just after we published it. So today, Thursday, June 22nd through Saturday, June 24, 2017, Sitka is hosting their first Sitka Gear Converge event in which they've brought together the top hunting guides and outfitters from across the country all here for a few days in Bozeman, Montana here at Sitka HQ for a whole slew of different seminars and events and feedback sessions and all sorts of cool stuff. And I'm actually here in Bozeman helping out and covering the event. So if you're interested in seeing what's going on here at Converge, and if you want to hear from some of the guides and outfitters and influencers that are here, 
head over to the Wired to Hunt social media accounts over these next few days because I'm going to be posting a lot of pictures and videos on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff. So you might even get a Facebook Live video or two going as well. We're also going to be recording some podcasts, so look for those in the future. And with that said, if in the meantime you want to learn more about Sitka's product offerings and get a better idea of why so many of these top guides and outfitters use their gear, you can visit SitkaGear.com. And now let's get back to the show and our Q&A. All right, so want me to uh, just pick one of these randomly, read it off to you, Dan, and then see what you think? Yeah, go for it. All right. I'm not going to name uh, last names here, just, I don't know, for whatever reason. So Tom W. has our first question here, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of the context here that he added in the email. He said that after re- reading my review on the Bushnell wireless cameras, I took the plunge and bought one for one of my close private hunting spots. I'm coordinating the buck picks with a history function on weather underground, and it's super cool to see the bucks working the wind coming in to my trophy rock mineral site. I have it on a Ditch Creek draw that runs beneath an open field with a lot of white oaks bordering the field. It's a great pinch point, and I've observed many deer work through here in the past. I think this will allow me to go in only when I have daylight movement. Our season opens September 2nd, and I have one three- or four-year-old buck showing up regularly. My hope is that he won't change his range before the opener, but my question is this. What time would be the latest you'd feel comfortable going in to change the batteries and add minerals to that trail camera site? So... He's got a camera out. It's a wireless camera, so he doesn't need to go check SD cards and stuff, but he wants to hunt here, so he doesn't want to go in there too often or too late and spook any deer that might be coming into the mineral or to his camera. Um, so what do you think? He's got a September 2nd opener. So would okay, you... What state? I don't think he mentioned, or I didn't include that in my okay. copy and paste portion, but it must be one of the western states, I'd guess. September 2nd, I mean, maybe Kentucky, North Dakota, uh Montana, well, I don't think Montana can't use cameras during the season, so it can't be that. Um, I don't know who else has that early of a season. Yeah, maybe it was Kentucky, just on guess, because you can't have mineral stations in Illinois or Iowa or, you know, anywhere close to where your stand is. So if he's he's hunting, I'm guessing it's probably Kentucky that, you know, if you mentioned it, or any other state, maybe even Ohio. But... I would just, I mean, that mineral's in the ground there for uh, a good period of time. So maybe if his opener is, you know, the 1st of September or whatever, maybe August 1st and then let it, let it sit completely for 30 days. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah. And what he's, what he's using is then he he can check those cameras and see if the, if the guy's coming through on daylight, he can head in there and hunt him. Um, I, I, I lean towards what you're saying too, because I'm the same way. Like I always like to have everything on my main property set at least a month before the opening day. And I don't go in there at all if, if I can help it. Um, the only caveat I would add though, just given my experience with wireless cameras, I don't know. I know you've, you have one. I don't know how much you used it, right? Um, yeah, it it acts as just a regular trail camera these yeah. days because I can't get signal down there. Yeah. So the only thing I've seen is that the batteries die a little faster on those. Um, now, I think on average I've gotten more than 30 days. I've gotten like six weeks, seven weeks, something like that. Um, but I guess if I'm being like particular, if I'm not used to using it for long periods of time and if I didn't know that for sure, and if I'm depending on this to make my, 
you know, my decision on going in there. I might like push it one more week and like maybe August 6th or 7th or something like that, go in there, set the camera, make sure it's perfect. Make sure this battery is good. Um, and then be good to go. Or, you know, actually the, the, the better idea would be simply to have that camera out going right now and just monitor how long, how long he keeps a charge on those, you know, because with the phone app on these wireless cameras, you can track the battery level. So you can see when that battery dies. So just pay attention when you put the batteries in the last, see how long those batteries give you, see if it's six weeks or eight weeks or whatever. Um, and then go in there and I, I, I agree. I think four weeks would be at least, you know, if you can leave it for four weeks and then you've got an undisturbed area, you can sneak in there the first time when you know he's moving or some type of conditions change that should get him moving and he'll have no idea there. And that, that makes for a great opening day set. And if you can drive a vehicle right up to it. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Four wheeler two, that'll work. Um, yep. I was bringing some kind of scent elimination spray with me to spray anything that I touch. Try wear gloves when you're handling it. Um, I bring nose jammer too and just put a spritz of that on the ground. Just one more thing to throw off any human scent that might drop off of me. Um, and then also when you're checking that camera, I'd recommend you try to make sure you're doing that when the wind is not blowing right to where you think those deer would be bedded. Um, right. And do it at midday, ideally. So go on there when deer aren't going to be moving. Make sure the wind's not blowing into that spot. And if you keep all that stuff good and careful, um, and then you let three, four weeks pass by, he should be feeling super comfortable. And, um, man, you'll have a chance maybe, hopefully. There's, you know, I mean, we've talked about it before. There's always the chance that these deer are going to shift ranges in early September. But right. um, if he doesn't, this could be a pretty sweet setup. Yeah. Sounds like he's got a, a good pinch point anyway with some good food around it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he's got those white oaks that are all along there. So that could be, there could be some acorns starting to drop by then that maybe uh, they're hitting and maybe there's some, some crop fields out in front that they'd be touching off. So. I'm excited. Well, good luck. Yes. Good luck and send us picks. Good luck, Tom. Hopefully this works out. We got another question here from Dan H. Dan H. is hunting in southwestern Wisconsin. And in the past two years, he's been getting a lot of trail camera pictures of black bears and bobcats. Uh, he also has been seeing some coyotes. Um, he says it's fun getting those pictures, but it also has some concern about fawn survival. Uh, he'd mentioned there's a lot of material available out there, you know, print online that talks about managing land to improve food or travel routes or bedding areas, but he hasn't seen much advice on managing a property to provide pregnant does a nursery, you know, somewhere where these fawns can survive predation. So he asks, are to do that, are we looking for a specific type of cover or topography? Do they prefer an area with numerous escape routes or an area devoid of any trails and traffic? Should I keep mowing my hay field to maintain the grassland cover or should I let it go follow and encourage tree establishment? Um, so that's, that is what he's wondering. What can he do on his property to improve fawning habitat um, and help, help uh, some of those fawns survive predators? Have you heard anything about this stuff, Dan? Any thoughts on that? Anything you've read or heard? Well, based, based off his question, here's what I'm going to say. Anywhere that a deer can go, so can a coyote and so can a bear, right? So here's, and yes, habitat does play a role and I'll probably let you get to that because you know more about habitat than I do. But it sounds to me that you need to do some kind of predator work yourself. Um, either, you know, if it's legal to kill bobcats in your state, uh, trap 
uh, you can start up a trapping regiment for coyotes and uh, for bobcats. If there's a lot of bears, and I don't know what state was he in? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Um, does Wisconsin have a bear season? I would assume so, but I guess if I there, don't know. Yeah, if there is a bear season, bear hunt, right? So uh, habitat's only part of the issue, and I feel that predator control, if there's a lot on your farm, that has to be part of your management strategy as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's all it's all part of it. Um, I just actually was listening to, um, oh gosh, I don't know, a podcast with Pat Durkin, who's an outdoor writer in Wisconsin. He was actually talking about some of the predator issues they've had there and just how some recent studies have shown that the majority of the predation there, the fawn predation is actually coming from black bears, even though most people kind of point the finger at coyotes or wolves. Um, something like up to 25% of the predation they found was from black bears. And then like only 6% was coyotes. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, predators can definitely have an impact. Um, I do know that when it comes to coyotes, the best time to, to try to manage them is in spring when they're, um, you know, pups are dropping and stuff like that. And you can trap them at that time period. That's the best time to trap them from what I understand. I've never done it, but I've just heard that a lot. Um, and I've also just heard that it's really difficult to manage coyote populations with just kind of random hunting and like you know if you're out deer hunting yeah. and you see a coyote i'm gonna shoot that coyote that really doesn't make an impact at all i've even heard that even hunting with a gun and you know going out there in the winter and trying to call them in and stuff even making a concerted effort like that still doesn't make a difference on coyote populations just because of their the fact that if you take one out two more move in um you know they they just are they reproduce rapidly they move around a lot um, there's some really interesting things um, in the book that I've talked about before, The American Serengeti, um, and then also another book called Coyote America, both of them by Dan Flores. Um, he talks about just the, some of the unique adapt adaptations that coyotes have had that allow them to kind of survive a lot of the different things and pressures that we've been putting on them and that, you know, other predators put on them. Um, so, like, for a long time, coyotes were like the little brother to wolves. Um, so they had to develop different adaptations to survive and, and kind of carve out a niche in the ecosystem. So for example, um, we've never talked about this before, have we? Mm -mm. Okay. Um, so one of the things I remember reading about was that one coyotes adjust how quickly they are. They, 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 you know, this isn't something they think about obviously, but whatever biological mechanism is within these coyotes adjusts the reproductive rate, the, the litter size of coyotes based on the density of coyotes in the area. And as I understand it, somehow there's like almost like a census taking part of what coyotes are doing when they howl at night is that they're kind of in some way keeping track of the, what other, what other animals in the area, what other coyotes in the area. Um, and somehow this kind of fills in the gaps and, when there is a coyote in an area, let's say there's a mating pair in an area, and there's no other coyotes around, then that female is going to have a much larger litter size. And I'm, I'm going to get the numbers wrong. I don't remember what the numbers are, but it was like substantially larger litter size, like a litter size up to like 10 or something, let's hypothetically wow. say. But if that coyote and if that mating pair is in the area with the dense population of coyotes, its litter size would be much smaller, three or four or five, something like that. 
So what you end up having is if I go into a place and I shoot a bunch of coyotes, but I left one mating pair or something, or the mating pair from a mile over moves into the area because now they're in an area of lower density, their litter sizes increase and that just, it just makes up for it. So this has been a big part of, of how coyote populations have moved so quickly and grown so quickly because they keep filling in the gaps wherever there's an opening lots you'll get these young males and eventually females that move out into these new areas and then they increase their reproductive rate um so it's it's a difficult thing to to manage in that way so a lot of people have said unless you're going to do some really really intense trapping they're almost there's almost nothing you can do. The best thing you can do is try to provide habitat cover that can help those fawns survive it. Um, and so that goes to Dan's question. And so uh, as I understand it, the best cover for fawns is going to be that early successional habitat. So that, you know, overgrown fields or, you know, thick interior, like in the timber when there's cut over, you know, let's do a bunch of hinge cutting or something. And now you've got all this new growth brush and forbs and bushes and grasses and all that kind of stuff that good fawn level cover is what's going to allow these fawns to survive and have somewhere to hide um another interesting thing i saw when i was actually doing a little reading on this recently i just pulled this up before we did the podcast there was a study conducted by john kilga who is a research wildlife biologist with the forest service um, did the study in south carolina and um I don't have I don't remember all the details of how the the study was conducted, but what they found was that the most important factor they were seeing to increase fawn survival was having lots of edge cover and a lot of different types of habitat cover in air. So this is a quote from the study: fawns with the least amount of edge in their home range were more than twice as likely to be killed by coyotes as those with the most edge. Um, it goes on to say that fawns whose home range had many small patches of different cover types had the best chances of survival. The researchers were uncertain whether this was because the edge areas provided better hiding spots or whether there were simply too many areas for the coyotes to search. Um, so I found that pretty interesting. So right. from what I understand, early successional habitat, so great, low-to-the-ground habitat, thick, and then lots of edge, lots of different places. You know, um, you don't want just one little two-acre area of cover. You want to have lots of different types of cover all around so that there's many different places these fawns can be born. Um, and then so that when these coyotes are out there looking for them in the spring, they know that all the farms aren't just going to be in this one, two acre spot. They're going to be all right. over the place. Um, so from a habitat standpoint, that's, uh, that's something to look at. Um, there's one other thing I was going to mention on this front. Um, I'm blanking on what it was, but you know, this is a little bit outside of most deer hunters control. Um, but here's something to keep in mind too. When you have a deer herd that is off kilter, if you've got a deer herd that does not have an even distribution of age structure, um, so let's say you've got a deer herd in Iowa that you've got a, a relatively even number of year-and-a-half-old bucks, two-and-a-half-year-old bucks, three-and-a-half-year-old bucks, four, et cetera, and you have a decent um, ratio between bucks and does. That's like a good, normal, natural deer herd. When you have that, you're typically going to have a more a tighter rut. You're going to have a more aggressive rut and a more consistent rut that's going to be in a, in a shorter time frame. When you have a deer herd that is out of whack, 
where there's not many mature bucks, you've got tons and tons of does and not as many bucks, and they're mostly a year and a half old bucks. Um, there's been a number of studies that tend to show that, that ends up leading to a more drawn out rut. It's not as not as intensive a rut and more drawn out. There is a benefit to having the the short intense rut because what happens in that situation when you have the majority of the breeding more so done in a small time period, that means that the majority of all those fawns in the spring will drop at the same time. And basically you overload the predator population with fawns because if all, let's say there's going to be 20 fawns born in a, in a, in a block, those 20 fawns, if they're all dropped within a week and a half or a week or something like that, and there's 10 coyotes, they may not have enough time to randomly come across those, all those 20 fawns and kill them. But if you took that same 20 fawns and you had them born over the course of four weeks, all of a sudden now it's much easier for that same number of coyotes to eventually kill all those fawns. So in a perfect world, you want a great habitat and then you want to have an even age structure, well-balanced deer herd that allows for that tight rut that allows for that consistent drop of fawns all around the same time so that a greater percentage survive. Makes sense. Yeah. So that's my long biology rant. (laughs) (laughs) Had to get the science in today. A little bit of science in there. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, So hopefully that's helpful. I I think as far as, you know, Dan, if you're, if you're trying to do this, um, so if you want to increase that successional habitat, early successional habitat, if you want to add more edge, I mean, doing some cutting in your timber, doing some hinge cutting or some selective cutting to open up the canopy. That's a good way to do it. Um, I think when it comes to like mowing your hay field and stuff, um, I would try not to maintain just a consistent grassland as I've, as I've read, it's better to have, you know, a a natural, um, variety of cover, not just like one single grass. Um, it'd be, it'd be better if it's a bunch of different things. So you might want to burn that grass and let it grow like whatever the natural seed bed components are, let them grow up. Um, or you can do some selective spraying and knock out some things and, and uh, provide openings for new things to start growing. Um, I don't know if you remember this, Dan, but last year, I think it was in our interview with Craig Harper, he talked a lot about this, about how you can use some s- selective spraying of herbicide to increase and improve your old field type stuff. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here. So right, right. that's what I re- I'd recommend. Go listen to Craig Harper's episode where he talks about that. Cause that's a great way to improve this type of cover. Um, and that's, that's good for fawns, but it's also good for, for all the deer provides good, high quality cover. Most of the season, most of the year that, um, bucks, does the whole, the whole crew will benefit from. So, Whew. that's all I got on fawn habitat. <laughs> <laughs> um, look for the ebook. Look for the ebook. I'm definitely not the guy to write that ebook, <laughs> but I, I've read enough to at least say things. <laughs> um, how about this question from John I. Dan? He says that he's going to be going out of state for the first time this year to do a DIY public land hunt. Um, he's going to be using a lot of the tips from some of our DIY posts and his planning. So he's wondering if we know of any resources or ideas to help him link up with other guys who might be interested in doing the same type of hunt. Um, he says that most of his bow hunting buddies at home aren't really into the style of hunting that he wants to do that kind of DIY mobile, um, campaign, that kind of thing. Um, so his current hunting buddies are kind of out of the question. What would you do Dan? How do you go about finding some new buddies to take a trip like this? I mean, well, you can go to the forums, right? I'm sure there's 
guys out there like that, you know, start a thread or whatever. But to be honest with you, just be active on social media like the Wired to Hunt Facebook page. I'm sure there's guys out there that are looking for the same thing that you're looking for. Um, Go to, you know, look through social media and anytime someone starts uh, posting questions about, um, you know, posting questions about uh, taking some DIY trips, chime in and say, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm looking to do something like that, but I'm looking for uh, a couple guys to go with me. Uh, and social media, I mean, Facebook in general is just a great place for that. And I don't know about you, but, uh, Mark, but on my Facebook page, there is a majority of the guys who post the most are the, like there, there's a, a, a core group of guys that do a lot of the same posting, right? I almost know them by name. Yeah. And those guys, you'll want to look for those guys too, because if they, they're not just active on the nine finger Chronicles or the wired to hunt Facebook page, they're active on a lot of social media pages. So, uh, keep an eye out for those guys. See if you can make some matches there. Um, and it just, I, I guess it's just comes down to keep your eyes open and, uh, you know, don't be afraid to strike up conversations with random, random guys, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted best friend. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you ever see that, that movie? I love you, man. Uh, yeah, I have kind of like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a funny movie. Um, no, I think that's a, that's good advice. Um, I'll add one thing. If on the off chance, you are listening to this right now and you too want to do a DIY public land hunt in Ohio, comment on the Facebook post for this podcast. When I post it on the Wired Hunt Facebook page, comment on this. And it maybe they'll, I don't know, maybe there's no one who wants to do that, but maybe there's three guys out there, a handful of people out there that actually have been wanting to do a trip to Ohio and have just been wondering about who they could go with. Maybe we can be the matchmaker. So if you're listening, comment on this post, mention that you want to do a trip like this. And who knows, maybe that'll be a way to connect a few people to try something. Um, that'd be pretty sweet. We could have like a wired to hunt, uh, public land, Ohio hunt for wired hunt listeners. I think it would be cool to have a, what are some of those matchmaking sites like eHarmony, but yeah. for <laughs> but for deer hunters? Uh-huh. I, you know, I've heard like people. I don't think there's actually maybe there's something like that out there. Um, that would be an interesting idea. Um, I know there's like hunt swap type things on forums right. where hunt people, share. Yeah, yeah, where you know, hey, you can come hunt my, you you can bass fish on my farm pond if I can come deer hunt in your spot in Iowa or whatever. Um, so maybe there'd be a way to do that. That'd be cool. Um, yeah. You know, another idea other than forums and social media, you know, look into conservation groups around you. Um, Absolutely. Like the Quality Deer Management Association has got branches all over the country, local branches where, you know, people in your area get together and have banquets and meetings and habitat days and different things. Or um, I'm involved in that with QDMA or like backcountry hunters and anglers. We have a Michigan chapter and there's chapters all across the country now where you can get involved. And those are great ways to, to find like-minded people. And while you go out there and go to some of these events, get to know some people, all of a sudden, you know, there's 10 other hardcore hunters that maybe have the same interests you have. And, uh, you know, there might be someone that's a good fit there too. So I'd say try to get involved with local groups too in person and see yep. where that might lead you. Absolutely. That's a great so, idea. Yeah. I occasionally get one of those. Good luck. 
Yeah, good luck. But to if it's a, if it's a really good hunt, make sure you reach out to me and Mark first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> if it's the right spot. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right, Dan, you want to talk about gear for a second? Let's talk about gear. All right, we got a question from Emmett A. And he said, if you have got a minute or could answer this on a podcast at some point, what is your Sitka wardrobe? I've heard you talk about the shacket and a few other pieces, but I don't know what your collection all entails. Or if you were to start over buying Sitka, what would your first purchases be? Um, he mentions that he has basically bought early and mid-season stuff so far, um, but he's trying to figure out what to buy next. So, Dan, both you and I have got Sitka gear in our wardrobes for hunting. Uh, you want to walk through which pieces you like or what ones you've used so far? And I can kind of run through my stuff too. Yeah. First off, I want to say, dude, the, 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 the name Emmett is a badass name. <laughs> uh, like, like I feel like a guy named Emmett just got, is real chill, real laid back. But if you talk shit to him, you're going to get beat up. Well, that's, no. that's just, a, that's just <laughs> my first impression. Noted. The guy with the name Emmett. <laughs> I always okay, no. you've got you've got you've got such interesting uh, like first impressions based on names. Wasn't there someone else we had in the podcast where like you heard the name you're like oh this guy he's legit oh, yeah, yeah probably Bronson but I, I, Bronson oh yeah Bronson Strickland yeah yeah just and it kind of <laughs> reminded me of Charles Bronson like uh-huh. you know a cop who doesn't play by the rules but it's for a good cause type of <laughs> type of person I've seen that show before yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> what was the question? So there, yeah, gear, right? <laughs> I'll tell you, I know I know what Mark's going to say, so I'll let him take that. But hands down, one of my favorite pieces of Sitka gear is the Calvin Light vest. And it does an amazing job. And it, it's, I don't even think it's uh, in the whitetail system. Um, right. But – but it is a down vest. It's very light. You can crunch it up to almost nothing. And I will walk to my tree stand with basically just a, a t- you know, something very light on, maybe a ho- that hoodie, uh, the Sitka hoodie. Then I will uh, get into my tree stand. I'll set up everything that I need to set up, let my body cool down a little bit. I will throw on one of my mid layers and then over top of my mid layer before I put my shell on, I will put on that Kelvin light vest and it does an outstanding job of blocking wind and holding warmth. Yeah. And it's and, and lightweight, not bulky, very lightweight, very like I'm, I'm telling you, you can wad it up and put it into like a cargo pant pocket. Yeah. Yeah, that having like portable insulation like that that isn't like a pain in the butt to carry with you in and out of the woods when you're not wearing it is something yeah. I love too. Right. The other piece for me um, is the Merino Ultralight Beanie, the Merino Beanie. And I, I, there's times when I'm wearing a stocking cap and it just over time, it just feels like it, it starts to irritate either my hair or it keeps sliding up or it, uh, I don't know, it's not covering what it needs to cover. Uh, and that ultralight beanie does an awesome job of not only keeping you warm while you're walking to the stand, right? It, it wicks away that moisture. But once you get in the stand, you can pull it down. It's going to cover your ears. It's going to do, um, it's not going to slide up. And 
for as thin as it is, it does a great job uh, uh, holding warmth into your head, which is, as we all know, like 80% of the heat lost from your body goes through your head. Nice. Yeah, I, I've got one of those too, and I agree. It's nice. It, you mentioned like how sometimes you get irritated with like a, a bigger, thicker hat, like pushing in yeah. your hair or ears or something. I yeah. agree. Having like a lightweight hat is nice to just avoid that. And it's it's kind of crazy because there's some times where I don't know if you ever get this. Your head may be kind of hot, so you'll take your hat off, and it, it it becomes difficult to regulate your the rest of your body. And I'm talking in extremely cold situations like late season hunts, where you take your hat off and then you get cold, and you put your hat on and then uh, your body's kind of cold and but your head's kind of hot. You know, I've run into some scenarios like that, and that and it, it's. A, it's a very simple and from a from a, a cost standpoint, it's a great introductory introductory. Is that how you say it? Introductory. Yeah, introductory. Introductory uh, <laughs> piece piece of equipment from Sitka because it's not too crazy expensive. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an easy one to pick up and try out. And and the, the is there any is there any other pieces you were going to mention, or else that would kind of segue into something I would mention. Yeah. Yep. I think, uh, those, for me, those are the two that, that stick out a lot. Nice. Well, I mean, as you mentioned, the light Merino wool hat is a great option. They also have base layers of the same type of fabric that are really super nice. I also use one of their core late, their core light base layers, which are synthetic. They're not in wool. Um, but they're synthetic base layers. And I just think these are like the most important one of the most important pieces I wear, no matter what type of clothing you wear, make sure you get some kind of moisture wicking base layer. It makes yes. such a huge difference yes. um, to get that sweat off you, to get you dried off. Because when you walk in and out, no matter how hard you try to take it easy and try not to sweat, you still do. At least I do. I can't. There's no way I can walk to a stand and not sweat somewhat. Um, so being able to have that moisture taken off of your, your skin by a base layer um, makes all the difference in the world with being comfortable with staying warm. Um, so definitely get a quality set of base layers. So for me, that's the core lightweight system from Sitka. Um, then I think you were alluding to this earlier. I love the fanatic hoodie, right? You do too. Yep. Um, we've talked about, it, I think before, but it's got so many cool little built-in features unless it's crazy, crazy hot. I am wearing that hoodie every single time I go out. It's not like a thick sweatshirt hoodie. It's more like a thick long sleeve shirt. Um, and it's got this really nice tight hood. It's got a built-in face mask that you can take on or off. It has a little kangaroo pocket for your hands. It has these built-in hand mitts that you can be, you know, almost like wearing gloves. If it's really cold in the morning, you can slip over the cover on your hands so you can hold your bow and not freeze your hand off. Um, some really nice smart features in there. So I've got the lightweight core base layers. I'm usually going to wear in the early to mid season, I'm wearing my Stratus pants. Um, and then I'm going to have the Fanatic hoodie. And then when it gets a little bit colder, I then put on the Fanatic vest, which is similar Primaloft insulation, the wind stopper fabric that they have treatment that blocks the wind. It's pretty lightweight, packable, not quite as small as the uh, the Kelvin that you mentioned, Dan, but it's got some of the other features that the Fanatic jacket has, which is like um, it's got the sideways zip that, again, allows for the kangaroo pocket, hand warmer pocket, which is just so nice to have. It's got a little built-in like uh, rangefinder grunt tube pocket on the side. So I, I just got that last year and ended up wearing that in a lot of my hunts. 
And then once it gets super cold, then I switch out. I get rid of the stress pants, and instead I put on the Fanatic bibs and the Fanatic jacket when it's, like, uber cold. And so that's my main system. That's what I'm rotating in and out. I'd say, like, 80% of my hunts is just the stress pants, Fanatic hoodie, Fanatic vest. Um, yeah. But then once you get to, like, late November and December, then I'm going to the bigger stuff that's super warm windproof i mean that's going to keep you out in the woods when you need to be so um i also he did mention the jacket which is a piece that i I really like as well that's basically like a t-shirt jacket um it's a jacket that just doesn't have sleeves from the elbow down and i like that a lot um but when i got the fanatic vest i ended up going with the fanatic vest a little bit more because that had the wind stopper so that blocked the wind the jacket didn't the jacket was meant more as an inside piece um but both both really nice. Um, I put actually, oh go ahead. I was just gonna say I was actually meaning to do a video re- sometime here soon going through all the different pieces of sick I've used because I actually haven't like done a review of it or like a comprehensive um, walk through my different gear, my different clothing. I haven't done that in years. so I was gonna do that soon and I'll try to do it in the next few weeks. but this kind of gives you a little bit of a preview, I guess. And just kind of a, a word of warning. Um, I just want, I, I should have mentioned it when I was talking about it, but that Calvin light vest, it is not an out outer layer piece. And what I mean by that is, um, it's not designed to get wet and it's loud. So if you're going to use it, use it underneath of another layer of something that will muffle the noise on it. Uh, cause it does have, um, it is kind of, uh, Oh, I don't even know what the term does it say is, but it, it, it's a it's a little noisy right. uh, if you brush if you brush up against it. But you mentioned the shacket, so what I'll do is uh, depending if it's cold, but there's sun um, and there's a lo- uh, not so much wind, I won't wear a, a outer shell. I'll wear a, a base layer. I'll wear my fanatic hoodie. I will wear the ultra light Cal- or the Calvin vest, and then I'll put my shacket over top of that. Nice. So that will that muffles that that sound, but I'm telling you right now, it stops the wind and it holds the heat, yeah, very well. Yeah, and that shacket is it does have that much quieter outer fabric, yep. so yep. that works out nicely for that way. That's that's an important thing to remember because when Sitka produces these pieces, they are really for specific needs, and so yep. things like that Celsius that Celsius line is specifically for an insulator, a mid layer piece which goes between your base layer and your outer layer. So, you know, as if, if you're going to try this gear, keep that in mind that it works as a system. Um, and I know a lot of people like we need to like work our way into it. Cause you might not be able to get, you know, six things all at once. Um, yeah. so just think about that when you're, when you're putting your, your pieces together, how they might work together. And then if you have to start with one or other, you know, which ones to get first. So that's something to think what, about. What would you recommend as the very first piece of Sitka that somebody should pick up? If I can only get one individual piece, um, and if I already had some base layers that were serviceable, um, my very first piece would probably be the Fanatic hoodie. Yeah. Um, just because I wear that so much, and it's unique compared to like any other thing you're going to have. Um, that's probably my absolute favorite. Yeah, yeah. I would have to go with, like you said, the base layer, like, First and foremost, if you don't have a good base layer, get a good base layer yeah. because a base layer controls your body temperature uh, from, you know, because 
before I, I started doing layering, you'd walk to the tree stand, you'd be sweaty. And after 30 minutes, you're cold for the entire rest of the hunt. Oh yeah. Right. Get those cold sweats. Oh yeah. And that sucks. And then you're not thinking about hunting. You're thinking about staying warm. Yeah. So if you don't have, if you already have a base layer, a good base layer, I would have to go with uh, the hoodie or dude, I, I, I don't know what it is, but that vest is ridiculously good. Yeah. I, I hear you. I hear you. It's just so nice to be able to have that quick and easy way to warm up at the, it's like, you know, like you got that mid October, late October hunt when it's kind of warm in the day. So you're just going to walk in with your long sleeve, but then like the last 15 minutes of daylight, Yep. The sun starts setting and you start getting that nip in the air and you're like, oh gosh, I wish I had something. But, yep. you know, lots of times I, you you don't pack it because you don't want to carry yep. something. Well, when you've got that little vest like that that's so convenient, it's, it's, it's there all the time. Yep, absolutely. So that's nice. Okay, so before we get to our next question, we're going to pause one more time for a big thanks to our partners at Whitetail Properties, who stepped up big time to help make this podcast possible. And as you've been hearing over the past few months, each week in this segment, we've been getting some great bits and pieces of whitetail wisdom from Whitetail Properties Land Specialists. As I'm sure you've been picking up already, this team of folks over there is top-notch. They truly are incredible resources and experts when it comes to deer and hunting and habitat improvements and, of course, buying and selling land. And today, I want to make sure you're aware that Whitetail Properties team members have actually appeared in the past on this podcast for entire episodes. And those interviews are just jam-packed with helpful insight. So once you're done listening to this one, if you have a little more time or maybe bookmark these for later, check out episode number 46 with Dan Perez in which we talk about shed hunting, episode number 92 with Ben Harshine where we talk about using maps to improve your hunting, number 98 again with Dan Perez and we talk about how average Joes can go about buying their first piece of hunting land, episode 111 with Jake Elinger, in which we cover all sorts of small property hunting and habitat ideas, and then in episode 119 with Tony Hansen, in which we discuss tactics for hunting heavily pressured areas. These are some great episodes. I think you really enjoy them, so check them out. And if you want to learn more about Whitetail Properties in general, you can visit whitetailproperties.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, next question. Um... Next, let's see here. Okay, this is from Charlie S. Charlie is a 16-year-old whitetail and turkey hunter, and the past few years he's really gotten into deer hunting on his father's 250-acre farm in Ohio. Uh, the farm has 70 acres of woods, so that means it's a lot of open field too. His dad isn't a big deer hunter at all, so he has practically learned everything on his own from watching hunting shows and videos. Um, he's wondering what he can do to, con- to more consistently draw in mature bucks and make the woods an ideal home for deer. He said last year he killed a nice eight-pointer, and he was just wondering how a kid like me could advance my hunting skills and make a better whitetail property. So That's a big, that's a big question. That's a very big and broad question. I figured we could like maybe touch on a few intro ideas for him maybe. Yeah, I'll, let you, I'll, I'll let you kick it off. Okay. So if I'm, you know, hopefully – Hopefully, uh, Charlie, your dad can help you out or someone who can help you out that has some equipment or something um, or experience doing these types of things. But if you've got 250 acres, of which 70 acres maybe are woods, if the rest is like, you know, some farm field that maybe you can't mess around with, let's now just think about that 70 acres. Um, and I think rather than like talking like really, really detailed, I would recommend zooming out a little bit and look at the big picture. So 
look at your property and look at like, what do I have that deer want and need? So what kind of food do we have in this property? You know, what are the crops that are planted around here? What kind of foods in the woods? Is there a lot of understory, lots of new brush and growth that the deer are eating? Are there a lot of oak trees and acorns and stuff? Are there apple trees or some other type of mass tree that's producing good food? So figure out, okay, what kind of food do I have? Look and see what kind of water do I have? Do I have any water? Um, and then third, what kind of cover do I have? Do I, get, do I have good security cover? Because right, those are the three things deer need. They need food, water, and they need security in the form of some type of cover. So identify that stuff on your property. Figure out what you have, what you don't have. Then zoom out further and look at your neighbors and try to, you know, based on looking at the maps or from talking to them or looking over the fence line or something like that, try to see what do they have. Do they have lots of food? Do they have lots of cover? Do they have lots of water? Do they not have any of those things? Now you can start to see where the discrepancies are, and that's going to help you improve your property in the in the most bang for your buck type of way. So let's just say hypothetically that your neighbor has got the best food in the world. He's got food plots all over the place. It's a deer buffet, but he's got no cover. It's just like big, mature timber, and it's wide open. Um, what you can probably reasonably guess is that the deer are going to feed over there, but they're not going to bed over there in that junky wildlife cover. Or, you know, if they do, they could be easily convinced to go somewhere else. So there's an opportunity for you there. You now have an opportunity to say, okay, I know that cover's lacking around me, Maybe I can produce the very best cover in the area. And if you do that, you're going to get a disproportionate number of deer coming to spend time on your property because you're providing something that's unique in the area that they want and need. Um, so that's one way to think about where to spend your time and energy when trying to improve it. It might be the other way around. Maybe, you know, maybe there's tons of cover on the neighbors, but no food. Well, now maybe you can carve out some food plots in your woods, open up some area. Um, you know, if, if all those things being equal and like everything's the same all around you and you just want to try to improve your property a little bit, obviously I'd say, you know, start small. If it's just you and your dad working on it, um, there's some easy things you can do. If there's any way you can clear out a few little areas to plant some like honey hole type food plots, some little food plots that can help you attract deer to a specific location. Um, that's a great way to improve your hunting and also provide some things to your property. that are going to increase deer activity and then also try to improve a couple areas for cover. So I would try to identify someplace within that woods that can be some type of sanctuary that you never go into, that you leave as a place that these, that some deer can, can bed in and live in and not feel that they're getting pressured all the time. Um, if you can provide that security, you're going to hold deer. And then if you've got that, then you know, okay, there's going to be deer bedded in that sanctuary. And maybe you create two little tiny eighth-acre food plots that are about 100 yards away each. And you know that, okay, if I can get to this little food plot, there's probably going to be deer coming from that sanctuary. Um, and now you just set up your tree stands in between. Or you think about how you can hunt with the wind to make sure you're not blowing into that sanctuary. Um, so, just, I mean, this is this is very high-level, simplified, but just a few things to think about. Um, you know, just try to get something started. It's hard to do a ton of things all at once, so I'd like, you know, do a little hinge cutting. This is where you're cutting a tree halfway, pushing it over, and that's a great way to create new cover to open up the canopy. Um, or maybe your dad or someone can hire someone to come, you know, someone from a logging company, and they might do a selective cut and part of your timber in that sanctuary area to create good, great cover. Um, maybe pick one of the things I've just mentioned and look into it more, do some more reading, um, and try that out this year. And then the next year you try a little more, the next year you try a little more. Um, but at a high level, look at what you've got, look what your neighbors have, try to fill that gap 
And um, remember, deer need food, cover, water, and some security. So that's what I got, Dan. Nice. So here's my take, right? You're 16 years old. uh, You're able to work, right? And I don't know if you work for your dad on the farm or you have a job, but if your dad is the farmer of this property, that means you have a hundred and what, 80 acres of ag on your property. I would start off and not necessarily worry about food plots, but talk to your dad or the farmer about leaving some of that crop standing, uh, for ag food plots, right? I mean, you have a 180 acre food plot on your property. So talk to whoever the farmer is about leaving some of that, uh, soybeans, I take it, or corn standing. And that is just a great opportunity to concentrate deer that are already coming to, a field down into a smaller area. And I think what you'll find is especially late season, uh, you'll be able to catch a lot of deer coming to some of those, uh, standing ag fields that haven't been cut yet. Uh, so trade labor for whether you need to help your dad or whoever the farmer is on this piece of property say, Hey, I'll be able to, I'll do some work for you around the farm. If you leave, you know, uh, an acre or two standing. I don't, and I, I don't even know how many bushels are in an acre and what that would cost, you know, the farmer to, to actually leave it up. But that is, that's the very first thing that, um, popped into my head would be, uh, uh, would be to, to leave some, some kind of crop standing if, if that's an option. The second thing is learn how to run a chainsaw. And there's tons of information out there on how to hinge cut, how to create bedding, read up on that. And then the other thing is, and I, I, I think I heard him say strategy in that question, right? If not, let's just throw it in there. Okay. <laughs> but I think my, so. str- my strategy is to stop watching outdoor television mm. and do not listen to what those people are telling you because a majority of outdoor television is hunting highly managed farms on giant food plots that are, um, you know, that, that, that piece of property is manicured for one reason and one reason only. And that is whitetails. You are not hunting that kind of property. So you need to be as observant as humanly possible on your own properties. How do you move in and, kind of perform a continuous learning type of scenario in your brain document, you know, observe where you're finding rubs, where you're finding scrapes and learn on your own property. Yes. Some of those people, um, can provide you some principles, but it's going to be up to you to apply those principles to your own property. So that's just kind of a a little rant that I had. It's the only person that can make you a better hunter is you. And, and from a property standpoint, you have to, uh, you have to go on your property. You have to scout it every year, uh, multiple times a year, you know, within reason, go shed hunting, look for those beds after the season's already over, try to find those thick areas. And, uh, it it all comes down to time, right? How much time are we going to dedicate to this property and to becoming a better deer hunter? Yeah, that's some, that's some really good advice. I'm glad you mentioned that stuff too. Um, a lot of good stuff. That was a great answer, Dan. I, I, like, I, like, I like what you had there. 
<laughs> what I, what happened? I blacked out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know how to follow that. I was just like, yeah, 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 it's good. I don't <laughs> well, have anything I mean, else. I mean, dude, I wish that there was podcasts like this when I was growing up, right? Because when oh, I was yeah. growing up, the only type of content was magazines that were typically the same type of articles that are being written today, five tips to kill a big buck, 10 tips to kill a big buck, you know, all these tips and tricks. And, and it's just the same information every year, year after year after year. Yeah. And then, and then the television shows when I was growing up is here comes a buck, shoot it. Here comes a buck, shoot it. And I know there's a little bit more to that than, you know, today than there is now, but you're not getting an education doing yeah, that. It's mostly just entertainment. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So, Learn that, learn now that you're in charge, not anybody else. Yeah. And to your point, and we're likely very biased given that we're podcast hosts, but, yeah. but I really do believe that this medium allows for a level of education that you just can't get with any of the, any of the other things, the TV with a magazine article. Um, I can't, I'm sure you've gotten the same thing. I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten from people that have been listening to this over the years, um, who are saying that this has changed the way they deer hunt in the past year or two more than in 30 years of hunting beforehand. Um, because we're able to have these long conversations with people, get lots and lots of different perspectives, break them down, think about them, talk about them, try these things ourselves, um, and experiment. So this is a shameless, shameless plug, but, um, well, but, it's true, Mark. Do you hunt l large pieces of managed property? Do you use an outfitter? Do you have hundreds of acres of food plots? No, 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 and no. Right. So I'm not trying to talk shit on the people who do have those things because yeah. we all have different scenarios. You know, we all have different uh, hand of cards that's been dealt to us. But one thing that just really pisses me off is when somebody tries to give advice to their, to the listener, you know, when they just pulled up to an outfitter and got out, sat in a tree stand and killed a deer. I'm sorry for the rant. No, I, I hear you to say, I just, that's. And then I think, it, I think it gets, it, it gets twisted because then you have you know, a very impressionable and I, I'm not here to, um, you know, s talk trash on his age. Cause he's, 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 he emailed you or typed in that question because he, he sincerely wants to know how to be a better deer hunter. And if we don't, you know, we have a responsibility as content providers, I, in my opinion, to say stuff that is going to, I guess, I don't know. I, I don't, here, I'll just put it this way. I don't know shit about food plots really. So I'm not going to really comment on food plots. Right. Right. And that, that kind of stuff. Yes. Yes. And I think the way I've always looked at it is, I like when I'm watching a TV show or something, just look at it. What's the right way to put it? Take it for what it is. Take it for what it is. Yeah. It's, it's entertainment, but don't try to look at that and think that that's what your hunting is going to be like or should be like, because to your point, Dan, a lot of people either have lots of money, time and energy they put into this area to create this amazing spot, which is great and fine. And they have that and that's tremendous. Um, but you may not have those same resources or opportunities. So you're going to have a different set of situations work with what you got. But I will say, um, when you do find people that seem to be providing advice, at least are providing, um, 
insight into their own experiences, take that if you can and find ways to apply it to your own experience. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So what I like with what we do here and with like what you're doing, Dan, and, and a number of other folks is we try to get people from all sorts of different situations. So sometimes we're talking to someone who hunts public land. Sometimes we're talking to somebody who hunts a little lease. Sometimes we're talking to someone who has 2000 acres that they heavily manage. Um, as long as that person is saying, Hey, this is what I do. This is how it works for me. This is yep. what I've learned. Um, just listen to them say, Hey, this may not be the same for me, but maybe I can take something from it that I can apply to it. And I think if you listen to people with, through that lens, um, you can take little tiny pieces and build that puzzle on your own 40 acres or whatever it might be that you're, that you're hunting on. Right. I want to say one more thing about, about a 16 year old kid, right? Be a good kid. And, I, <laughs> and, and I say this because I was an asshole as a 16 year old, right? I was getting in trouble all the time. I was, you know, partying and, and doing all these dumb things. Be good, help your parents out. And this is going to sound kind of like an after school special or, or the, <laughs> you know, the more, you know, but Papa Dan. The whole, yeah, the whole point is this cold fronts coming through in November. You got a deer patterned the night before, and you can't hunt them that next morning because you got to go to school. So if you're a good kid, you talk to your mom, you talk to your dad, and you're just like, oh man, dad, I can, can you call me in for, you know, say I'm sick or I'm going to be late to school because I want to be on this buck. And if you work hard on the farm and your dad sees that that's your passion, he'll be more likely to help you accomplish that goal by maybe making a phone call for you someday. It's a great point. And, and something you and me have talked about is like we look back on like our college years too and like, oh, I wish we weren't, you know, off doing stupid things when we could have, you know, we had all that time and not quite as much responsibility and obligation as we have now. We could have been going on more hunting trips or planning better, you know, things on our properties or whatever it might have been. We could have been way ahead of where we are now if we'd been this into it and putting as much time into it when we were 16, 17, 18 rather than out chasing girls or something. Um of course, you know, you got to enjoy your, enjoy your youth, but, uh, right. man, be good, get your deer hunting in early, take advantage right. of the fact you don't have a full-time job maybe yet or a family. And, uh, it's man, there's so much advice I want to give this kid and it's not necessarily advice, but I, w I look back now and I found my passion in life, uh, I guess a little bit later than probably what's his name again, Charlie, Charlie, what Charlie found, right? So he, he, He's a, he loves to deer hunt. It sounds like, right. And he, uh, he wants to get into it and be more successful. Um, I just like, for me, the things that I thought were important as a kid were, are not important. The things that I, uh, thought were important as even a young adult or hell, even, a even in my mid twenties after college were not important. Like, I don't know how much time I wasted sitting at a bar, you know, a bar stool, when I should have been out climbing mountains, hiking and, um, setting trail cameras. Yeah. Setting trail cameras <laughs> and, you know, going on Western trips, you know, saving my summer money so I could go on a Western trip and, you know, go, going out to eat all the time and, and, and just wasted time. Yeah. Don't do what I did. Right. I mean, find something you're passionate about, uh, you're passionate about and go head first into it. Yeah. And that's that, I mean, this is not about deer hunting at this point. It's about don't waste, don't, don't do dumb shit like me. <laughs> <laughs> Cause that time never comes back.
No, it doesn't. Then, then you're then you're 36 years old saying, "Man, I wish I did this," and you can't live your life that way. It's true. It's true, man. Well, speaking of uh, hunting trips, hunting trips, we've got a question. We got two questions about trips. Um, this one, it might be a quick answer because I just did a little looking into it. I'm not sure if you're going to have anything to add to this or not, but we'll tackle it just in case anyone else is in the same boat. We got a question from Chris M who goes to Kansas every year on a rutcation, but he started putting in for Iowa points as well. And he expects to get drawn in a few years when he has his third preference point. Um, the issue though, he says is that the Iowa application, this is the non-resident application process starts after the Kansas application ends. Um, and you also find out about your Kansas tag before you can get drawn for Iowa. So the dilemma is that if you get drawn for Kansas and also get drawn for Iowa, you can't get a refund on your Kansas tag. Um, if you only want to go to Iowa and you can't do both. Um, so his question is, what do I do in this situation? If I want to try to draw an Iowa tag, but I don't want to not be able to hunt Kansas is his question. If he can't, you know, get the Iowa tag. So I looked into it a little bit further um, and what I would recommend, because he doesn't want to, he does he wants to avoid being in a situation where he can't get either tag, but he'd love to hunt Iowa someday. So I would say two things. Number one, Iowa publishes the drawing odds from the previous year for non-resident applications. So look up on the Iowa DNR website and look at those those odds for the unit, for the zone that you are, that you're trying to hunt. And it'll tell you that, you know, people with two points in this unit, you know, 60% of them drew. And people in this unit with three points got, you know, 90% of it. Whatever it is, use that to kind of educate yourself on when you think you really will get that tag. Um, The year that you have the preference points that gets you, you know, 90% or better odds of drawing your Iowa tag, and this is assuming you can't do both, um, I would recommend that that year you don't apply for Kansas. You just apply for Iowa, um, and I say that because Kansas does offer leftover tags for units if the quota isn't filled after their application process. So you could apply for Iowa, and if you didn't get it, there could still be a chance that Kansas has leftover tags after the application that you can buy online first come, first serve. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, and then hopefully, you know, you picked, you know, you didn't, apply for Iowa until that year where you had really good chances. So you're probably going to draw your Iowa tag, but on the off chance you don't, you've got the leftover option with Kansas. And on the off chance that neither of those things happened, you didn't get your Iowa tag. There was no leftover tags left in Kansas. I'd say screw Iowa, screw Kansas, go hunt Nebraska or Missouri or Oklahoma. One of these other States that are right around Iowa or Kansas that are, in my opinion, probably just as good in a lot of areas and you can get that tag over the counter, less money, and uh, there's lots of great hunting in all those states too, where you have just as good of a hunt. So that's uh, that's my take on that. Anything else you'd add, Dan? No, I think you uh, you hit it. Just try to alternate years, man, or, or just get to a point in your Iowa tag system where you you know you're going to draw, right? So maybe go one extra year on buying an Iowa tag, hunt Kansas guaranteed, and then don't even apply for Kansas when you know you have the right amount of points to hunt Iowa. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's units in Iowa where if you have three or four points, like you're guaranteed to draw. Right. Um, right. So just look at those drawing odds for the year before, figure out what unit is going to give you the pretty much guaranteed draw 
and um, and pick that year to do just Iowa. That's what I would do. Okay. Last two questions, Dan. They're kind of related to the same thing, and okay. um, you and me both, I think, can add some thoughts on this. This is a little outside of the usual, um, but we both had some experiences out there, and I know I get a lot of emails asking about this kind of thing, so I thought we'd talk about it. Um, first question is from Brody. He says he got a slightly unusual request based on uh, your, me, Mark's extensive travel throughout the western United States. He's looking for a potential honeymoon destination last week of September, and he wondered if we had some ideas of some ecosystems or areas that would provide stunning views and plenty of wildlife for them to go explore. That's question A. And question B is from Derek, who is asking something similar. He uh, said he listened to one of our podcasts where we talked about my shitty camping situation. <laughs> he said, yeah, he said that was very intriguing. <laughs> um, and he had some questions about the trip. He would like to get some details about the route of the trip, things we stopped by, checked out, places to camp, things worth doing with a dog, um, anything like that. Um, he also was curious about if tent camping was okay in areas with bears and grizzly bears and whatnot. Um, so basically Brody and Derek are both looking for some recommended vacation spots and ideas for heading to the West for the first time. You've done this a few times now, Dan, I know it's in your blood based on what you've seen so far. What would you recommend? All right. Well, I'm going to leave most of this to you because you have the most experience with this kind of thing. So I'm just going to give some specific examples to the places that I've been, uh, Dude, Rocky Mountain National Park is gorgeous. Plenty of camping opportunities there. Um, you go a little bit further west, uh, there is a small town called Georgetown, Colorado, uh, west of Denver. I think it's right off the interstate. And then there's a road that leads all the way up to um, Mount Beardstat, which is a 14,000 foot peak. In uh, there, there's a you know like 54 14ers in uh, Colorado. There's some camping up up there, but absolutely gorgeous views uh, throughout that entire area. Um, and then. I'm very partial to the plains, man. Like I love that wide open stuff. So, um, this isn't necessarily way out West, but Lake McConaughey in Nebraska, North of Ogallala, it's, it's a crystal clear lake. It's white sand beach and you can camp, you can pull your car or truck and camper right on the sand and make, um, and, and camp right there on the, on the shore. That's awesome. Uh, and then dude, the last one that might overlap you a little bit is j- even though I bought a very expensive <laughs> tent <laughs> tent there, dude, Jackson Hole, Wyoming is kind of a cool little, little town. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And did we, did we get to go towards the T te- did you get to see the Tetons or was it cloudy and rainy that day? Well, I don't think we made it. We didn't go North and it, and it was foggy. Okay. So we didn't see a long ways away. Um, we saw some of the Rockies and dude, I tell you what, in, in driving through Colorado is awesome and fun, but driving through Southern Wyoming in that wide open and you can see mountains in the far distance, yeah. uh, you can see mountains up close. Um, it, I'm sure that is definitely a road you've taken several times now, yeah. but, uh, any it's hard because anywhere out there is stunning yeah i agree 
lots of lots of great places to check out. I um been just super lucky to have been able to spend a lot of time out in these places. I've been able to hang out in the Southwest and like Arizona and Utah. I've been able to go out to some of the stuff in the Northwest to like Mount Rainier and the Cascades and some of that when I was really young. Did some backpacking and camping, climbing out in the Sierra Nevadas and like Yosemite and Kings Canyon and Sequoia National Parks out there. Um, but my absolute favorite general region is the northern Rocky Mountains, um, that interior mountain west of Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. It has just got that sweet spot for me of like absolutely stunning terrain, the mountains, the the plains, the, the glacial lakes, the rivers. It's all just absolutely gorgeous. But then you also have the full suite of wildlife still there in most of these places. So unlike Utah or California or um, – you know, even Colorado, when you're in Idaho, Wyoming, or Montana and parts of those three States, you can still see Buffalo, grizzly bears, wolves, and then all the other big game, you know, elk, moose, antelope, mule deer, whitetails, coyotes. Um, just the wildlife is unbelievable. Um, so he, Brody asked, you know, is there some specific ecosystems or areas? Number one, my number one favorite place in the world is the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So that is this area. It's a large area that is much more than just Yellowstone Park, but Yellowstone Park is kind of at the core of it. And this is at the corner of Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, where they all come together. That's Northwestern Wyoming. There's just all this amazing stuff right there. This is where the town of Jackson Hole is. Uh, this is where the town of Bozeman Montana, all these places that I spend so much time in, um, they're all kind of right around this. So within that, you've got Grand Teton National Park and a bunch of national forests and wilderness areas right around there. That is one of my absolute favorite places in the world. Um, you know, we, we elk hunt not too far from that. Um, I backpack out there, fly fish out there. Um, we've, we've stayed out there for a few summers. The Tetons are probably the most gorgeous mountain range in the lower 48 that I, that I've seen. Um, so you can't go wrong with like base camping in Grand Teton National Park and doing stuff out there. And Brody said he's going to be there in the last week of September. So if you're out there in that area around the Tetons um, or just heading north a little bit into Yellowstone, all that whole area is loaded with elk. So you're going to be, here, you're going to be hearing elk screaming. Um, you're going to see all sorts of wildlife. It's beautiful, crisp, and clear out there. I mean, you were there with me in September, Dan. Those aspens are changing colors. Um, you know, comfortable days, but cool, crisp nights and mornings. Um, you know what's cool? It's unbelievable. Uh, like senses, the smell. You step outside of uh, a dusty state. I mean, like where I live, you know, yeah, there's cities and towns and stuff like that. But you get out west and there's something about a sense of smell, like especially like the sage, yeah. right? That just stays with you longer almost than yes. some of the other sites that you can, can hear or see. It's crazy. And it's like, it's, at least for me, as soon as like I get out of the car for the first time when I get to somewhere like that and you, you breathe in that, like you said, the sage and the pine, it like, it's like a rush of memories and like feelings all at once from all the previous times you've experienced that. It's just like, ooh, right. I love it. I absolutely, absolutely love it. So GYE, probably my favorite place in the world. Um, the Northern, uh, 
Rocky Mountain area. Um, the con- oh gosh, what do you call it? Um, I'm blanking on this, but up around Glacier National Park, there's the Bob Marshall Wilderness. There's the Lolo National Forest. There's a bunch of stuff right up there um, by the Canadian border. That is another absolutely beautiful place. Lots and lots of things there to do. Um, so if I were to probably pick my two favorite places in the world to go do something out in the Mountain West, I'd say first somewhere around the Rockies or somewhere around the GYE. So I'd probably start in Jackson and the Tetons and then I'd move into Yellowstone for a little bit and I'd see Yellowstone cause you just have to see Yellowstone. Um, make sure you hit Lamar Valley. That's this valley in the park where there's just thousands of Buffalo and all sorts of wildlife and beautiful views. Um, and then hike in the Tetons do some stuff like that fly fish the snake river or the teton river which is on the idaho side of the line there um great fishing not as busy on that side of the mountains um and then head up to northern montana if you can to the area around glacier just unbelievable mountains again lots and lots of wildlife um and then one other thing i'd recommend is sort of to your point dan Get out on the plains. So if you're if you're in Montana, one of my favorite things about Montana, probably why Montana is my favorite state, is because it has the mountains. The western third of the state is just so many different mountain ranges and so many different rivers and just unbelievable vertical terrain, rock and ice and pine trees and just unbelievable. But then you also have this other side of the state that's just vast, wide open, rolling hills and grasslands and badlands and coolies and all these breaks and buttes and brock and just bizarre different wild features you've got all these different ecosystems and terrain um and it's just big open and empty you can i mean one of my favorite things when i was out there deer hunting in montana is that i could just pull up i could stop my car in the middle of the road and i could step out of my car stand on the middle of this road and just spin around circles and i didn't need to worry about another car driving I didn't need to worry about seeing a house or a person or a light. I could just look out and see mountains on either side, this huge, wide valley of swaying grasses and maybe some elk way off in the distance or a bunch of mule deer nearby and perfect silence. And it, it's just that is like heaven for me, just being somewhere like that. And there's so much of that out there in Montana. Um, and in a lot of these western states, you can find that too. Um, but that's kind of my little favorite spot. Um and man, I could, I could talk for days about all these different things, but right. I love me some whitetails, but there's some great stuff above and beyond that too. Now, I don't know if, uh, your wives, like if, uh, you're going on I, a honeymoon and I don't what, have multiple wives, right? No, <laughs> but like this guy, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, he's going on his honeymoon. You might want to consider if she's not into the hiking, backpacking, um, you know, outdoor scene like you that, you know, obviously it can't be a one-sided trip. Uh, make sure you do some fun things. Cause I'd hate to see your, uh, your marriage start off on a, the <laughs> wrong foot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I went out to Western Washington, uh, North of Seattle, uh, for a wedding once and, um, went to the, uh, it's called Wibley Island. Um, and it was, what's the, the Puget Sound, yeah. uh, way on the North part of it had to take a ferry to get there. That's the only way. And then we, um, went took two more ferries to a uh, Olymp- uh, Olympic National Park on the Washington, basically, peninsula that uh, shoots up towards towards the north, basically the border. Yeah. Uh, that is that is an absolutely gorgeous uh, place as well, from, from zero to 5,000 feet, just like that. Yeah. Pacific Northwest, and that's a yeah. – that's a 
beautiful mountains, but a very different feel, you know, it's yeah, like absolutely. That so wet and green and lush rainforest. You know, yep. Um, and very cool. We're just, we're so lucky here in America to have a wide variety of different places. I mean, I don't, there, I don't know. I mean, there's not a whole lot of places in the world where you can see as you can sample as many different ecosystems and places and see such world-class scenery and wildlife. And, you know, it goes back to what we talk about a lot, public land, baby. We are so lucky to have all these places because um, some very forward-thinking men and women a long time ago decided to fight for these places. And, man, I am very, very glad about it. Absolutely. Well. We've talked a long time today. We've talked a long time about just random stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so It's all good. I mean, that's I love that stuff. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully there's still three or four people still listening that enjoy going. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think this is a good place to wrap it up, though. So, do you have anything uh, else you want to cover? No, man. Just that sixteen-year-old kid, man. Uh, <laughs> be good. Be good. Be chase, good. chase your dreams. Yeah, don't, chase your dreams. Don't be like Dan. Keep all your fingers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and with that, let's shut this one down. Oh, but before we shut down, Dan, I just want to say again, thank you so much for those antlers. Yeah, no worries, dude. That is so cool. They're meant to be in Mark Kittenden's house. Well, they will be forever and for always. And that right there is our episode. A few quick updates for you. First off, like I mentioned earlier, follow along with the Sitka Converge event this week by checking out the Wired Hunt Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook accounts. And speaking of social media, as I mentioned last week, I'm taking over the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership Instagram next week. That's the week of June 26, 2017, and I'll be posting some cool stories and photos there over those five days. So check out the TRCP Insta. I think you'll enjoy that stuff. And with all that said, big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And of course, thank you all for listening. I'm 100% certain you are the coolest bunch of hunting podcast listeners out there and damn good hunters too. So have a great week and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.